Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the, of the European show. Um, this is going to be our last episode before the Euros start. So we're going to have a, a week and a half break before we return. And so to join me, is, as usual, is, is Nick. Hi, it's it's me. I'm back again. After his, his brief episode out due to a croaky voice. It's, it's still croaky, but I can talk now. It's not like my voice is completely gone like it was before, but I'm, I'm glad to be back now. So in, in today's episode, we're going to look back at the major European finals as well as give our Serie A review as that is the only league we have left. And so obviously we'll first start with the Champions League final, which Chelsea triumphed 1-0 in quite a, a shock result for some people. Because obviously they thought Manchester City would win, but not me, as I had absolute faith in Chelsea that they would win. And they did, and I was correct. And even better, which is on record as well uh, from the previous episode, I did say Kai Havertz and albeit Timo Werner would both have quite a key role in in the final and they both ultimately did uh, well I mean Timo Werner's key role was missing like three chances he should have easily buried so I mean if, if that's what you call by playing an important part then then yeah he he, uh, he did something in the game but uh, Kai Havers on the other hand it was obviously crucial as he did score the, the winning goal so that you were right on, on that front I guess exactly so the first goal, Kai uh, Havertz latches onto a through ball played by Mason Mount and then proceeds to round Edison before slotting the ball in. But what's interesting about the goal is if Kai Havertz didn't score, Edison would have actually been sent off because he proceeded to touch the ball with his hands and he was outside of his box. So actually the dynamic of the game would have changed completely. In fairness, it was a pretty bad sweep from Ederson. He came out really early and he found himself really far out of his box much earlier than he should have been. If he had waited a second or two earlier before he started running, first of all, he would have had a better chance of, he would have had a better chance of stopping Havertz and, uh, I mean, and maybe uh, being more comfortable within his own box when, when Havertz was coming at him. And not to mention that he would have been able to use his hands. So yeah, that uh, that goal was a pretty big misjudgment from from Ederson, I would say. But but it wasn't solely his fault, obviously. But that's just a, a Ederson seems to make a habit of doing quite reckless things, whether that be colliding into his own players or just running out of the box aimlessly because he thinks he's Manuel Neuer. And, but, but but if there's one game in which you hope that. He wouldn't do such things. It would, you, you would imagine it's the Champions League final. But but this is a game where Manchester City kind of just capitulated. Yeah. But we'll, we'll get on to that uh, later on. Obviously, the, the stand-up player in this whole game was N'Golo Kante once again, who was just literally everywhere, as he as he normally is as well. But he, he literally was able to lock up the whole of the most of the Manchester City midfield. He, he, he is always incredible, absolutely incredible. And um, he showed it again today for like the fifth or sixth game in a row in the Champions League. He was not just good, but like the, the best defensive midfielder in the world um, in 2021, without a shadow of a doubt. And um, just the way he was everywhere, intercepting, tackling, blocking passes, cutting lanes. 
whatever. Uh, the strangest statistic that I discovered after this match was that N'Golo Kante, N'Golo Kante, like the shortest player on the pitch, won the most aerial balls out of anyone. How? What? It's such a weird thing that that occurred. It just shows how like determined and he is, and how well, also how high he can jump, I guess. And I, I thought that was absolutely incredible, and and obviously that played a very important role in his in his ball recovery. And then not just that, when whenever he would recover the ball, he was very intelligent and very clever in redistributing uh, the, the ball after, after after tackling, which obviously helped uh, Chelsea stay in control of the game for a long time. And uh, for me, it was the, the the two main defensive forces that really locked down Manchester City were uh, N'Golo Kante and also Reese James. I think Rishan is isn't being talked about enough. It's it's mostly Kante and Rudiger uh, having the light the limelight shone on them, but Rishan had an absolutely incredible game. He was absolutely insane. Uh, right, uh, Sterling was got got embodied one hundred percent of the time by by Reece James. It just could not do anything. Uh, there was times when when Zinchenko and Sterling would both go up at the same time to try and overload that wing. And Reese James just had it completely in control. He he never really uh, made it look like there was any danger coming down from from his right side of the pitch. And uh, he was just strong, confident, good at tackling. There was one time in the entire game that I saw Sterling get past Reese James, and literally a second later, Reese James just got back just got back on top of him and tackled him again. It, it was an, a masterful defensive performance. And then going up in attack, similar to Kante, he was very good, very organized, putting some dangerous crosses. And just overall, he was, uh, in my opinion, the second best player in the pitch. Some would say otherwise, but that, that's my that's what my take. It, it does it does bring into question if France are win- to win the Euros, should Angolo Kante win the Ballon d'Or? Because it's what do you bring it down to? Do you bring it down to individual performances, which Kante has produced many great individual performances? But that's when you also bring in the question of Messi. But then, do you then have to bring in what teams have won, what what the teams have won, to help distinguish the different players? And that is where N'Golo Kante would triumph. Well, the thing the thing is, we're only halfway through the year right now, so it would obviously be very dependent on what happens throughout the rest of twenty twenty one. I don't I don't think that really matters because obviously we all know. That the Ballon d'Or and end of year awards are all um, determined by either the Champions League winner or the major tournament that happened in the summer. I, I do think it matters. There's been quite a lot of Ballon d'Ors where where the winner was the 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 balance was tipped in the final three four months of the season when the winner just went crazy and scored like twenty goals in like four months or something. But um. For example, if Ngolo Kante just goes on and, and does absolutely nothing, just for some reason, it's almost impossible, obviously, that he just forgets to play football and it's absolutely terrible for the final four months, then someone like Messi or Lewandowski will win the Ballon d'Or. But whatever, as it stands right now, I don't think Messi's in the contention for the Ballon d'Or. It's, it's between Kante and Lewandowski for me. And I think that that's, that's a difficult thing, right? Because Kante has been putting up in absolutely incredible performances, but uh, Lewandowski has done... Basically, the impossible. Not, not the, not something that was literally impossible, right? But he broke Gerd Müller's uh, goal-scoring record. He was injured for a long time as well. 
this is an incredible individual achievement and it shows just how good he was as, as a singular person but also I would personally like to see uh, a defensive midfielder like Kante getting the recognition that, uh, that strikers get as well and it, and it would definitely be nice to see to, to see once again a defensive midfielder win the Ballon d'Or yeah, but it'd be it'd be good to see someone that is not a an attacker winning because obviously the last time uh, someone that wasn't an attacker won was well since Modric won it in twenty eighteen but obviously that is still quite a a conscientious topic is whether he deserved it or not yeah but if we're talking defensively minded it'd be Cannavaro back in two thousand six but on, on to City now this was another case of. Pep Guardiola really overthinking um, the final as Manchester City has decided to bench both Rodri and Fernandinho especially Fernandinho after he had such a great game against PSG and go with quite an attack minded midfield only for them to have one shot on target that may also be due to um, the great defensive effort by Chelsea but you would think a team with City's attacking assets and quality, they would be able to muster up more than one shot on target in a Champions League final. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I think that, well, it's hard to say because I would say that um, Tuchel found such a good way to close down and to close down Man City and just take away all of their options. I don't really see how Pep Guardiola could have found his way around it because... Um, as as we've seen, Guardiola has been experimenting with a lot of different systems. He's played that this was his third game against Tuchel since uh, Tuchel joined um, since Tuchel joined Chelsea, and he's been trying different systems and different tactics every time. Playing with a striker, playing without a striker, playing with uh, no defensive midfielders like he did in the final of the Champions League, or with one like he did in the Premier League, or two defensive midfielders like he did in the League Cup, and nothing has worked. He's he's been countered every time extremely well by Tuchel. So uh, I will I will say mostly that Guardiola just didn't know what to do. He he had been experimenting and, and trying things out, and and he couldn't find any any way to to break past his opponent. So he was just maybe trying to surprise his opponent, I guess, or um or trying to be a little bit creative, and and trying something that he hadn't tried before, and obviously it didn't end up working. But I think that even if he had gone for one of his more reliable reliable uh, strategies and, and lineups, I don't think he st- it still would have made that much of a difference because Tuchel has found such a reliable anti-Guardiola system that uh, I, th- I think from the from the way it ended up turning out, I don't think Guardiola had much of a chance either way. I, I think it, it was wrong um, to play, you know, the... the the top, their top goal scorer in all competitions, Ilkay Gundogan, as a defensive midfielder, because that is yes, he's a midfielder, but the runs he provides from the midfield has been key to why why he's, why he's been able to score so many goals, and that was seen when Fernandinho came on, and obviously there was that big chance um, where Cesar Azpilicueta was able to clear the ball over the bar. But right behind him was Ilkay Gundogan. And I do think if if they had made... If obviously, if Fernandinho had started, then it, this would have changed completely, as obviously Gundogan would have provided that extra threat. I also do think, obviously, 
Zinchenko is a lot more defensively minded um, fullback. But I do think you probably should have started Cancelo or at least brought him on and off the bench. Yeah, Cancelo has been quite poor of late. But I do think if you're against a team like the way Chelsea had played, then you need someone like Cancelo who will attempt something that's a bit more riskier than Zinchenko. Because it's it's something a risk one risky ball is all you need. And that may be the difference between Manchester City winning the Champions League or, or Chelsea, as obviously that's, that's how it went. I think that the the main point of focus was like the lower part of the of the Man City midfield where they just couldn't get the ball up to the up to the upper half of the midfield and then to the attackers. Which is where they were mostly being cut out by uh, by Jorginho and Kante, and occasionally Reese James when he came up. So that would have that should have probably been uh, the area of the pitch to fix for for Guardiola. I think Rodri might have helped with that considering he's a cool head, he's calm, he's organized. And then and then as you said, maybe play Gundogan a bit further up. I th- I think that. That, uh, that yeah, that would have been a good idea as well, as Gundogan could drive the ball upwards. But because we saw in the game that uh, City began getting really desperate, and in the last half hour they just didn't bother trying to structure their attacks and and drive the ball up the pitch with, with passing and, and dribbling. They would just take the ball out wide and cross it in, which is a a really stupid idea considering that uh, literally the last thirty minutes were just Man City crossing the ball in. Even though Chelsea has like the three tallest players on the pitch, and the city has no like tall attackers or good headers with the ball, so Aspilicueta, Rudiger, and um, and Christensen had literally no problem clearing every single cross, and and I think that was a product of how badly they were, um, Man City were choked in midfield. So yeah, th- th- that's really where I would say they lost the game. And obviously now Manchester City will be ruin everything that happened to them and they have to try and bounce back now and come back next year but this is obviously another failure for Manchester City as of this year they they went too attacking but ironically didn't create as much as they should have last year they went too defensively against Leon and got knocked out the year before against Tottenham that just a freak set of two games that that happened and then obviously against Liverpool the year before that they they got outplayed so it's it's another case and so it'd be interesting to see whether they learn from this again and can come back and bounce back next year but it, it does the only this does mean the only debutants a debutant in the final to win the trophy is Brissy Dortmund in 1997 every other debutant in the final has proceeded to lose and especially in the past three years, you've had Tottenham lose the final against Liverpool, PSG lose the final against Bayern Munich, and now Manchester City lose the final against Chelsea. And it also another fun stat is the fact that every team, a team for the past three years, the team that knocked Borussia Dortmund out would go on to lose the final. Also, for the last seven years, a Croatian player has won the Champions League. Exactly. So all these omens are. Uh, coming to fruition so whichever team as a Croatian player in next year's final will win the final by the way in case uh, anyone's unsure Kovacic was Chelsea's Croatian player he barely played but he was still in the squad well it's, it's the thing like Kovacic has 
like four medals in the Champions League, winners' medals in the Champions League, and he's played the total of like 34 minutes. Yeah. So now we're going to have our break, and then we will be back with the Europa League and the start of our Serie A. Welcome back from our break. Um, now we're going to look at the Europa League. Um, so obviously that was nearly a week ago, but we haven't had time to review it until now. So obviously it finished 1-1 between Villarreal and Manchester United with goals from Gerard Moreno and Edison Cavani. So obviously it wasn't as um, there weren't as many goals as Jack had predicted. But it, Villarreal ended up triumphing. Um, 11-10 on penalties and what was interesting about this was the fact that it the one in fact how deep it gone in penalties but it came down to the two goalies Jerome and Geronimo really buried his penalty before David De Gea proceeds to provide a weak penalty which is saved by Rulli and obviously gives Villarreal Europa League and what's great about this apart from the fact that Unai has won it again is the fact that Villarreal come from a town of 50,000 people and and they and they proceed to win uh, the Europa League and they're now in the Champions League which after finishing 7th I think the way it ended was was really crazy and wild and nice especially considering how most of the actual game was actually quite dull there was a good 30 minutes in the first half uh, I'd say in which, in which the game was very active and open and then uh, extra time was also pretty interesting with both teams attacking a lot but for, for the most part not much happened. It was mostly uh, manual possession, not really knowing what to do, getting blocked out by by, by the two Biarra uh, centre backs, who we extensively talked about in the podcast with with Jack Collins. There's being uh, Pau Torres and Albiol. They were absolutely incredible. They had two really good matches. But then once this pretty dull game finishes, probably the best penalty shootout. No, certainly the best penalty shootout I've seen in my life. Uh, began. And well, obviously, twenty-one goals in a row in a row were scored, and it wasn't even that the that the goalkeepers were overall that bad. Uh, the hair got a little bit of hate for not being able to save anything, but in fairness, it's just, it's just that most of the most of the penalties were just so well taken. Out of the twenty twenty-one penalties, I would probably say like maybe four were not amazing. Every everything else was taken with power near the posts. Many of them went into the top corners. Just everyone was taking really, really good penalties. E- even, especially Roli, actually, when he stepped up to take the penalty, I was like, no, no, no. It's a goalkeeper taking a pen. There's no way this is going to go well. And he bangs it into the top right corner. <laughs> it was amazing. And then De Gea uh, took a goalkeeper's penalty and he just played it really safe. And then it was saved, unfortunately. But over- overall, Manchester United were unable to break down uh, this compact Villarreal team and just showed how um, great Unai Emery built the team and it's actually and has masterminded another Europa League win. Yeah, exactly. As as uh, Jack Collins mentioned last time, Villarreal um, were you could tell you could tell uh, Unai Emery's handiwork by how mechanical. Villarreal uh, were and how just like they, they looked like they're like ticking clockwork with the rhythm in which they would move uh, as a unit and as a team they were so well disciplined in moving across to to block uh, United, United's advance of the ball 
and Albiolan Torres in in the center back positions understood each other so well that when one went up to to cover the other one, the other one would would run up to pressure, and vice versa. In, in the box, they would just they would be covering each other's weaknesses and everything. It was an amazing performance from the team overall. And obviously, that that managed to secure them uh, the Europa League, which is it's a great it's a great story. And obviously, everyone was hoping for a Manchester derby in in the Super Cup, but they ended up getting Chelsea versus Villarreal. And it also shows that uh, once you leave PSG, you're able to win trophies as well. With Unai Emery and both and Thomas Tuchel both winning major European trophies, which PSG still chase after. So now on to the beginning of our Serie A preview. So before we start talking about the manager and merry-go-round, uh, Inter Milan obviously won. And so the representatives for Italy in the Champions League will be Inter Milan, AC Milan, Atalanta and Juventus. Um, in the Europa League, it is Napoli and Lazio. In the Conference League, it is Roma and relegated are Benevento, Crotone and Palm. But obviously, what's interesting about this is the managerial changes that happened just over two weeks after the, the end of the season, or just under two weeks after the end of the season. So, before we got into two major ones... Gennaro Gattuso was sacked by Napoli, even though he's going to leave at the end of the season anyway, so it didn't really matter. And is now taking over Fiorentina, and Spalletti is taking over Napoli. But what's interesting at Juventus is Andrea Pirlo has been replaced by Allegri, who is obviously the ex-manager who who was in charge just over two years, just over two years ago, and they decided to bring him back to try and instill the winning mentality that he had and take the team back to the latter stages of the Champions League. You know, well, most interestingly, the manager who was touted to replace Perlo and didn't actually end up getting the job was Antonio Conte, who uh, left Inter Milan very bizarrely. You you wouldn't really expect someone who has just won the league for his team the first time in seven or eight years. Just suddenly be like, yeah, you know what, I'm done. Especially after he looked like he had such a good project and such a good relationship with with his players and in particular with his attackers. And it's just strange. But uh, the explanation behind it is allegedly he asked the board to to, to aim higher and to invest more in the team so that he could uh, do well in the Champions League. Obviously, they crashed out. For, for those of you who remember, they crashed out uh, in the group stage. And, and and so obviously Conte would like to like would like to rectify and ask his his board for support in, in improving the team even further, and they basically just said uh, we don't want to spend any money. In fact, we were planning on selling lots of players. So Conte was like, no, I'm not having any of this. You, we're, we're, our relationship isn't working, and he just told the the leadership he was leaving, which is wild and a. Uh, Really stupid way to lose one of your best managers in years, and, and it, it's possibly resulting in an exodus of players as well, because obviously Lukaku is been linked back to Chelsea, but most, or the most interesting one is Afraj Hakimi, uh, is being linked with PSG, and Barcelona, not Bos, and Bayern Munich, and so obviously Hakimi joined last summer after from Real Madrid after spending two years on loan at Bristol Dortmund. So this would technically be his fourth club in, in three years, which is mad. 
But whoever signs him, if he does leave, will be getting a great, great right back. But I, I do think Hakimi is um, stuck with the idea or is keen to stay in Milan. So now we're going to have our goal sum break and then we'll be, we will be back with our team of the year and our awards. Break. You, well, we didn't have a goal, so we we played liquidator, which is what Chelsea um, walk out to for their for their games. Is obviously Chelsea are the Champions League winners. What what do you give that? I think it's a uh, pretty strange. It, it is unique uh, in fairness to it, but I'm not a massive fan of it. I'll give it a five out of ten. I'll give it uh, a six. It's all right. It, it, can, it can be quite irritating, but it's also quite catchy at the same time. So now we got we are going to start uh, with our brief Syria um, season review or with our awards. And we'll first start with the team of the year. So in goal, I went with Jean Pierre Luigi Gellini. As obviously Atalanta surprisingly have the best defense in the league, considering the fact how much they love to attack and go forward. And Gellini has obviously been at the heart of that. And backs up my theory that if Atalanta had Gallini in goal last year in the Champions League, then they possibly could have beaten PSG. But obviously, that is a whole different story. Meanwhile, I have done a rumour. For the goalkeeper position, usually in the past, uh, we would fill it in with, with players from teams that we have left over. Because um, uh, as per the previous episodes, we can only have uh, up to two players per team. So, uh, yeah, it, usually whenever we have, we, we, we would fill up our team with players from the, from the best teams. And then we'd be like, oh, damn, I can't put any more AC Milan players or whatever. And then I'm going to fill the goalkeeper with that. But I decided to go for Donnarumma because I just think he was so incredible. He's, he, he's just always good. But he stood out so much this season. I was like, no, he has to be in this team. And so, yeah, for me, he was, without a shadow of a doubt, the, the, best, the best goalkeeper in Serie A. And that's why he is my goalkeeper here. So, in my defence, um, I have Juan Cuadrado, one of the only bright sparks in this um, Juventus season, as obviously he did also score the crucial goal against Inter Milan to keep them in contention for European qualification. Uh, I've gone for Teo Hernandez, um, who actually started off quite very well uh, for AC Milan at the beginning of the season. Obviously, as AC Milan's form began to dip, so did his. But I think he, he did enough to stay in um, my team. I've gone Christian Romero from Atalanta. Obviously, as I mentioned, Atalanta is the best defence in the league. And Romero has been at the centre of that as well as Gallini. And funny enough, Romero has actually won the Serie A best defender as well. 
so he does fully deserve to be in this. And then my final defender is Afash Hakimi, although you could argue he, he plays more of a right midfielder, but obviously he's provided the drive down the right-hand side uh, and used his, his immense pace to provide so many assists for, for the strikers as well as bags himself um, some of his own goals as well and just shows how great of a player is and how much potential he has if he's actually utilised a bit further forward instead of at right back. Meanwhile, in my defence, uh, I have two players in common with Jack, those being Teo Hernandez and Hakimi. While both of those are players that, that specialise in attacking, even though they're defenders, they, they were so capable in, in tracking back. And then obviously, as Jack mentioned, their, their, ta- their offensive accolades are, 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 are very well known by everyone. They're extremely good, and it, I, I think Jack has done a good job describing them. Teo Hernandez started off extremely, extremely well. Probably the best, if if not one of the top three players in the league during the start, and then uh, then he dropped off a little bit. But I think I think the that first half of the season it is good enough to earn him a spot here, and he wasn't even that bad uh, later on. Meanwhile, Atraf was more consistent throughout, and then uh, my my other two defenders are first of all a Serbi from from Lazio, bit of a bit of a veteran player. He was just strong and solid throughout. He he clearly showed his experience and imparted imparted his knowledge on on the younger players as well. And he played a, a key part in last year's season. And then my other centre back is another veteran of of the game, and that is Diego Godin, and and that is um, Godin. Uh, after after leaving Atleti, he didn't have a particularly good time at at Inter and not performing at his best and everyone it, it looked like he was washed up and couldn't do any more and after his move to Cagliari it, it it looked like he was just diminishing from there but he's made a comeback this season and he has been extremely good overall Imperial is always commanding uh, strong well positioned uh, m- much of what you would want from from your best defender really so my midfield I've got Rodrigo De Paul who has had a decent season at Udinese and has shown why he is so heavily touted around Europe by teams such as Liverpool and Leeds. Um, then I've got Henrik Mkhitaryan because he has been probably one of Rome's only Rome's only good players as they have performed quite poorly. Or they they with Roma were decent at the start of the season as they were challenging for the Champions League, but they ended up tailing off and ended up in the UEFA Conference League ultimately but Mkhitaryan was obviously the driving force behind all of this and then I've got the penalty merchant himself uh, Frank Kessier as my other um, as my other midfielder apart from his, his constant penalty taking he has had a great season in midfield as well Meanwhile, I also have Kessier he has been absolutely stellar in all parts of the pitch from, from the penalty spot to, to his own box where where he's been doing everything from defending to driving the ball up and dribbling passing well some would some would dare say he was the best midfielder in the league this season um, I personally wouldn't say I've seen enough of, of a variety of midfielders to say whether I can agree or disagree with that but from what I did see of Kessier he was extremely good and uh, I, I definitely see where those comments are coming from 
then my other two midfielders are Malinowski from from Atlanta. We we usually talk about um, in in these teams of the seasons we like to praise and talk about the the driving forces, the engines of of football teams, and uh, and Malinowski is that of the Atlanta midfield. He is very good at uh, turning with the ball. Finding finding the players in front of him, his twelve assists speak for themselves. He's actually the, the best playmaker in the league in terms of assists, and it's interesting because he was kind of overshadowed at the start of the season by Papu Gomez until until Gomez was forced out of the club basically, and then once with him gone, Malinowski had the the time and the space to to begin to shine, and shine he did. He he was extremely good in the second half of the season, and I really. And that's essentially why I've got him here. He he just improved so much, and was, in my opinion, the best attacking midfielder. Then my final my final midfielder. I was in between Locatelli and Chiesa, and in the end I went for Chiesa, uh, mostly because overall as a team Juventus did better than than Sassuolo, largely due to Chiesa. To be honest, also Chiesa was Juventus's best player, just just overall. And he essentially achieved this through hard work. Keza is a very skilled player, and he he's particularly good at dribbling and passing. But what stands out the most is, is his determination every game, and he gives it his all. Uh, pretty similar to to Pedri's case at Barcelona. And well, he he was just so crucial to his team in terms of playmaking, and and motivation. He was probably the only the only Juve player at times that would. Just keep his head up, and and stay motivated and motivate his teammates. And also one of the only Juve players at times to actually create any danger, to to be energetic and fast, and try and put any speed into his game. So I think that for this for this uh, ability to overcome odds, and and to, just to be so determined in every situation, I decided to put Keza over Locatelli. However, shout out to Locatelli, he was absolutely amazing, and he was in my. Uh, previous team of the first half of the season that we did in January. And so the forward line, I've got Ronaldo. Um, he was obviously the top goal scorer in the whole league. Uh, but obviously it'd be interesting to see whether he's at Juventus next year. But I, I do believe this, although he was top goal scorer, this was a lot more quiet. It was a quieter season for Ronaldo this year than normal. Um, then I've got Dusan Vlahovic. He's the season he's had, he's he scored the same amount of goals as Luis Muriel at Atalanta, and he's only twenty-one. And if if it wasn't for him, Fiorentina could have been potentially fighting relegation. And then my other player is Lukaku. Like, what what else do I have to say? He's he's had another great season at Inter, and it just gets better and better. And he's he. He's not the best striker in, in the world, because that is obviously Robert Lewandowski. But I do think he is close. But he, he, he you could pull him you could argue to pull him in second in second position. Meanwhile I have almost the same front three. I also have Ronaldo. Granted it he was inconsistent throughout the season in terms of overall playing. He wasn't at the top of his form for most of the season, and he played pretty badly a fair amount of the time. However, he got the goals in, 
in in many many games in many many games and he was the top scorer in the league by five goals which is a very fair amount it's also a huge amount of goals to get just forced up and it, it, it count it counted for a lot without ronaldo despite him sometimes being a bit of a, a dead weight he he was well, without ronaldo Juve would not have done as well as they did well, without a shadow of a doubt meanwhile lukaku once again one of the best strikers in the world crucial crucial component to to Inter Milan's side and well what else can you say he's big he's strong he's fast and he's got he's got a very nice finish on his left foot I, I think if Ronaldo wasn't there I'd probably be calling him the best player in the league it's a little bit contested now considering Ronaldo has more goals but but he, he did win MVP he did, yep exactly then my third attacker, I was in between Vlahovic and uh, Muriel. Contrary to what Jack said earlier, Muriel actually has one more goal than Vlahovic. But um, I would, I would personally would put Muriel over Vlahovic, mostly because it's a, uh, similar to my argument a few months ago in our previous team of the team of the season so far. Muriel just barely plays. He's just like a super sub. He comes on sometimes, and he just makes so much of an impact that uh, that clearly. He, he has one of the best uh, goal per minute uh, ratios in the league in Europe actually so I think that th- this ability to be so impactful with so little time to uh, to be able to create and score with just 30 minutes 40 minutes of playtime in many of his games I think it's absolutely crazy so yeah that's why I would probably say that in my opinion he was better than Vlahovic but it is extremely close so my player of the year is Lukaku um, he's he actually won MVP for Serie A as I mentioned earlier like there's not really anything else I can, I can say than what we've already said he's been immense this year I, I also put Lukaku I don't really I can't really think of anyone else who would <laughs> contest this spot from him I, I, I would say almost everyone would would have Lukaku on on their on their list of best players of the year. A uh, young player of the year is for me Dusan Vlahovic because of his uh, impact that he had for Fiorentina and the amount of goals he scored. I was also going to put Vlahovic until I found out Jack was putting Vlahovic as well. So for a little bit of variety, and just to switch it up, uh, I said to put Atraf. He is still twenty two, which make, which in my mind makes him young. He, so I I think he. Uh, still qualifies for this award by, by quite a lot and yeah I mean I already talked about him he's an alright defender but an extremely good attacker and a crucial to to Conte's offensive plans and uh, once again he's a, he's a player that without him the team wouldn't be the same Inter wouldn't have won the league without without Hakim in my opinion so, so because of that I would make him my young player of the year so my under under an overachievers. First start with overachievers. I gone for Spezia because they're quite a small team, but they managed to comfortably survive relegation as well. And so we'll be spending um, another season in Syria, as obviously they, they did get promoted. And so normally with teams like that, you'd think they'll end up going straight back down again. Obviously Spezia have managed to managed to mount some impressive results, especially against Napoli this year. My overachievers, or as I prefer to call it, pleasant surprise. It just sounds sounds less passive aggressive. <laughs> is um, AC Milan. This, this may sound a, a bit weird because they kind of choked the league at the end, and they looked like they were gonna win it. However, they looked like they were gonna win it. 
which if if you told someone uh, last season that AC Milan was going to challenge for the title, no one would have believed you. They've been so bad the last the last what five years, six years, that no one was really expecting much from them. Just getting into the Champions League would have been a would, would have been a, a nice for them, I'd say. But uh, but they did good overall. They they were first in the league for a very long time, and then they collapsed in in about February March. But I would say that the, the fact that they just ended up second was is incredible enough for, for a team that looked like it was dead, just fully dead. And so my underachiever is Juventus. The fact that they were just made it to the to qualify for the round of sixteen, and oh no, the fact they just qualified for the Champions League and had actually been. Terrible throughout the second half of the season. I, I just, I, they, they're the team that should be winning the league every year, and I do think they've experienced a massive drop off this year. And obviously, that's why they sacked Andrea Pirlo and brought in Allegri, as as obviously they want to, as as they want to uh, try and and bring back um, the success. They may not even be in the league next year if. If they proceed to pursue the Super League, so yeah, and so yeah, I, I've gone for Juventus because they've been poured in, in the second half, and they probably actually deserve not to be in the Champions League. I also have um, Juve as my as my undersheavers. It's quite close for me between Juve and Roma because Roma uh, have been slipping in recent years and have now ended up out of Europa League even. But overall, I went for for Juve because. It's a team that should be winning the league, or at least coming extremely close to winning the league every single year. And this year, they were just miles behind everyone. Just so, f- and then not only did they drop a lot of points and and such, and just on on the league table in terms of in terms of performance, they didn't look good on paper, but on the pitch, oh my god, watching Juventus play was a chore. Just the deadest football. Uh, no creativity, no energy, no speed. It, it's just not what we've been used to. Of but well, I mean, Juve has been declining recently, but just this is a new low. So yeah, I I, I agree with with Jack's pick of Juve being the underachievers. And so Nick has obviously his goals of the season before we end. Yeah, th- these aren't. Once again, I'd like to remind everyone, as as in previous previous episodes. Uh, I, I don't have three objectively good goals of the season because there are so many good goals that it's hard to say which one is the best one or which ones are the best ones. I just have my three favorite personal ones. And I recommend people uh, search these up as, as I'm talking about them because it's a little bit difficult and a little bit, yeah, just hard to try and try and audibly describe goals. So the first one would be Jorvino's volley versus Inter. I'll be perfectly honest. I forgot Jorvino was still a football player. And then, um, and then, yeah, I, I saw him score this against Inter. It was it's it's a really nice goal. He he breaks past the defense, and then a, a cross comes in. For, well, a long ball comes in from behind him, and he just taps it in first time in the top right corner. It, it's 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 nice. It's subtle. It, it's just a really clean goal. And then my second goal. These aren't in any particular order, by the way. My second goal on my list uh, is another volley. It's uh, by De Marco uh, against Torino. This is a spectacular, spectacular volley, uh, as opposed to the to the nice clean one from the previous one. 
in here in in this goal, the ball comes from the center of the pitch out wide to the to the marker who's on the left wing, and he just first time takes it, doesn't even let it bounce or anything, just swings his foot at it, connects perfectly cleanly from the edge of the box and volleys it into the top right corner again. It's absolutely crazy. It's such a good goal, and then finally. Uh, Verdi's bicycle kick, sorry, Verdi's bicycle kick versus Lazio. There was a lot of bicycles in, in Serie A to choose from this season. And I knew I wanted one of them on my list, but it was pretty difficult to choose which one specifically. But I think in terms of, in terms of technique and, uh, in terms of the, the ball they received it from, this one was probably the most impressive from what I personally, uh, thought. So, yeah, that's essentially why I chose this one. So that, that is the end of our Serie A review. And that is the end of the club football season. So, yeah, we've obviously, this is episode 54 now. It's a shame it wasn't 55. True. <laughs> and, and then on the, and the, I would say an even number, but you know what I mean, a satisfying number. Um, but yeah, we'll be back next week uh, at the end of the week for our Euro 2020 preview. And then you will have us every round, not every day or every week because we like to have a break and enjoy the football and our summer and so yeah and that's when the podcast will start going on crack in other different types of ways so yeah that that is it for today thank you for listening please like us please follow uh listen to us share us (laughs) all right well that's that's us done for for a while now uh i hope you'll enjoy your summer i know i will unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, in in which case, uh, stay warm. And so, we'll see you later. Goodbye.